0: We can turn over in your Bibles to First Thessalonians. Happy Father's Day. <clears throat> you know, before a child can walk, he has to first learn how to stand. And usually the father and the mother um, teach the child to stand and then to walk. And, and Paul really views himself as a spiritual father, as a spiritual parent, you might say, to these believers in Thessalonica. And um, before he had been forced, we know the story, to leave Thessalonica, and, and he's wondering how he could help but uh, have these young believers on his mind continuously. He started the church there, and then he was forced out, and so he was uh, unable to minister to them personally and um, he was wondering how these young Christians in this brand-new church are going to face uh, the trials and the tribulations of life. And in the first two chapters we've seen in our study of First Thessalonians that Paul explained, first of all, how the church was born and then how it was nurtured, how he and others taught there and spent time there and as much time as they could anyway. And now he moves on to the next step, after birth comes what? Maturity, right? You don't want a baby to be a baby forever. I mean, as cute as they are. Uh, or Most of them are anyway. Just being honest. <laughs> but we want those young babies to grow and to mature into adults, and the same thing spiritually, right? Um, and here he deals with the next step in their spiritual walk. How... The church was to stand. How the church was to stand against the trials and the tribulations of life. If you wanted a key word in chapter 3, it would be the word establish. The word establish, we see it in verse um, uh, 2. It says that he sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker, to establish. See it there, and you also see it down further at the end. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts. And that's a key word in this, this chapter. It has the idea of, of really setting, laying down a foundation. Um, the key thought is found in verse 8 of this chapter when he says, For now we live if, we, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul explained uh, three ministries that he performed to help these new uh, Christians become fir- firmly established. And so here in verses 1 through 5 of our text, uh, we're going to read that. And so I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. And, and beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 of First Thessalonians, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, here it is, to establish and exhort you in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts and our minds in Jesus. We thank you. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Beginning in verse 17, Paul's narrative changes and he begins this Uh, point of dealing with not just their past anymore and not just their conversion, but now how they deal with their faith on an ongoing basis. He begins to narrate how he is sorry that he can't be there with them, and so he shares his heart with these these dear people how, how much he cared about them and how he would Uh, come back to them in a moment's notice if he could. And so the first thing we looked at there, if we truly care for one another, this was last week, we will want to be together as the body of Christ. We will want to be together. And we looked at three things there. We said a desire to be together stems from our genuine caring for one another. Do we genuinely care for one another? Secondly, we said our enemy works to hinder our getting together. We know that all much to be true, right? I mean the idea that it's easy to get here on a Sunday morning with a family or, or whatever is going on in the, the week previous, it makes it hard to gather as the church. And then thirdly, the final result of our being together will be an overflowing flowing joy in the presence of our Lord and Jesus at his coming and that's how he closed off chapter two. And so we want to move on to chapter three and we see here that if we truly care for one another, Paul points out that we will strengthen and encourage one another spiritually when we're together. We will strengthen and encourage one another spiritually when we're together. And I want you to note three things here. The first thing is to see others strengthened and encouraged. How does this happen in their faith? It's often costly. It costs us something. And he points this out in verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore... When we could bear it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. The account in Acts of this situation in Acts 17, it doesn't include all the details of what happened here, but we do learn that Paul first went to Athens alone, while Silas and Timothy remained in Athens Berea, and when Paul and his friends left Thessalonica, they they went to Berea, and they ministered the word, and we know that they had to go because they were kicking them out of the city, but guess what? The troublemakers who caused problems in Thessalonica also caused problems in Berea. They followed them, and they stirred up much opposition there for them, and we can see this in Acts chapter 17, verse 10. It says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, remember, they just got in trouble for doing this in the previous city, right? You think that they wouldn't be so quick to do the same thing over. But when it's the right thing, when you're doing the right thing, it doesn't matter, does it? Verse 11, now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So these, these Jewish people here in Berea really just didn't take the man behind the podium's word for it. And nor should you. I don't care who's standing up here. You should have your Bible open. You should be making sure that whoever is teaching is teaching the word of God and not making up their own message, their own story. That's what we're called to do. We're called to preach the Word of God. We're not called to preach our opinion. We're not called to preach our own stories and illustrations. Now, we use those as windows in a sermon to, to kind of hold your attention. But sometimes, unfortunately, overwhelmingly, you'll hear a message, and it's, it's full of mostly windows. <laughs> There's no walls. There's no foundation. You just hear one story after the other. And you have to be balanced in that. Now, there are times, even myself, you know, Easter or something like that, or even a Christmas message, sometimes you know there's going to be a lot of visitors to your church, and and so you're going to kind of have to hold that audience uh, a little more firmly and carefully than you do your regular congregation who are used to uh, the way you teach and the time you teach and everything. And so sometimes you, you have to have more illustrations, but you should still maintain the fundamental emphasis on the Word of God. And these Bereans were just that. They examined the scriptures, look daily, it says, to see if these things were so. They just didn't take Paul's word for it. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And so Paul had to depart by himself. Verse 15 it says, Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so whoever was traveling with Paul at that time, Timothy and Silas, stayed in Berea, and Paul, they took on a ship and, and took him to Athens out of the fray of danger. Um, but Paul, not necessarily wanting to be alone, but he, he needed the help of, of Silas and Timothy, he had some kind of physical ailment. We don't know what it was exactly, but there was something going on with his body that he needed assistance continually. Well, he even sent them away, and Timothy ended up going back to Thessalonica. He couldn't bear it anymore. He couldn't be away from this new congregation without wondering how they were doing. And so he said, hey, you know, Timothy, I know you're here to help me, but I need you to go. Yeah, you need to go on this, this mission. Silas apparently went somewhere in Macedonia, perhaps Philippi, we don't know. Um, Acts 18.5 seems to indicate that. But that meant that Paul was alone in Athens and then in Corinth for several months until these faithful workers were able to rejoin him there in Corinth. And we see how much Paul was willing to uh, sacrifice in this situation the way he describes Timothy He describes Timothy as our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. In other words, Timothy was a big help to Paul. He wasn't just somebody that carried his books. Okay, He was somebody who was really instrumental in the ministry of Paul. And Paul sacrificed that. He was kind of a faithful son, you might say, to Paul in his laborers. To refer to him as God's fellow worker or some manuscripts say servant, is, is rather, it's a, it's, a, it's a strong truth that God can use us in ways that sometimes we don't even can't even imagine. And as painful as it was for Paul to send Timothy on this mission, he did it because he was more concerned for the spiritual well-being of the Thessalonians than he was for his own physical well-being. And so showing genuine care for one another means putting others' needs ahead of your own. And sometimes you can see here Paul's heart come out, you know, when he says he could bear it no longer. That, that kind of has the idea of, you know, I can't, I, I can't deal with this any longer. This is, this is beyond my ability to, to function at this point. I need to know how the Thessalonians are doing spiritually. He was concerned for them. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes you get away and you you go and you visit family. And, you know, I'm always curious. Well, what's going on in the church? How's the church doing? How are the messages going? How's the music going? How's this going? How's that going? I mean, if if I could somehow just fly back here on vacation and be here for Sunday, I would do it in a second. Why? Why? because you miss being part of the body of Christ. Now, yeah, you're going to another church, and that kind of takes the sharpness off it, because you get to see what other churches do, which you usually don't, aren't able to visit other churches, so when we're out of town, we always end up going to a different church, and, and it's kind of fun to see how the pastor teaches, and the music, and everything, and you learn and you grow by that, but you know, I, I would be lying if I said, you know being away from the ministry God has called you to is easy. It's not. It's just not. Um, I mean, it's good to get away and relax. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time, you know, you're concerned. And here he's saying when you strengthen and you encourage others in their faith, sometimes it costs you. Um, Secondly, the main area where um, the Thessalonians needed to be strengthened and encouraged, Paul says, really is their faith he wanted to point out that they needed that in their faith. He said, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind. In other words, I'm willing to forsake any help, and I'll be alone in Athens and Corinth as well. i got to send Timothy to you, because I know he's a good guy, and I know he's going to encourage you and strengthen you. Our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. And then he tells Timothy basically here, this is what he told Timothy, I want you to go there, Timothy, and I want you to establish and exhort them in their faith. I don't want you to go and find out what they're having for dinner or where they're living or is everything, are they sick physically? He wasn't concerned about that. He was concerned about their spiritual well-being. That word establish there in the verse Verse 2, sterizo, it means to strengthen, it means to support something with a kind of a buttress, um, to establish it, you might say. It's like when you're watching a house being built, they pour a foundation, they don't just pour the concrete in the ground, what do they do? They build a form. Right? They, they have wood and, or metal, and they, then they pour the concrete in the form. And then once the concrete is set, once it's established, once it's taken care of, then they can take the form away. And strong faith is the result, always, of knowing all that God has revealed to us. That's why teaching the Word of God and receiving teaching from the Bible is so important to your Christian growth. You can listen to Christian music, that's wonderful too. But it's not the same, and it's not on the same level as teaching and hearing the word of God being taught. It's not on the same level as sitting down with your own Bible and reading the word of God until you become familiar with the text and you get to understand who God is and the character and the nature of God and the attributes that God has. All those things will support you in your Christian growth. And it gives us a a firm foundation of sound doctrine. And there's a lot of churches today that, unfortunately, kind of poo-poo the idea of teaching doctrine. They say, well, people won't listen to doctrine. Being taught, they're not interested in doctrine. That's boring. You know, you have to have other things to kind of entertain them. And I agree that sometimes hearing doctrine taught is difficult. Because doctrine is really what? It's a theology. It's studying who? God. As exciting as that can be, sometimes you can study and study and study and you still don't understand it. Because God's God and we're not. There are some things that he hides from our understanding. And so we have to be okay with that. But the, the, the more we kind of indulge in and partake of the word of God, hopefully our foundation is being built up. And so when someone comes along and they teach something that is false, immediately your mind goes to, wait a minute, they're saying Jesus isn't God? Well, what about this verse? What about that verse that I've looked at? And and the word of God becomes your guide. That's what we're called to do as believers. The problem is a lot of believers today in the churches don't take the time, and they won't take the time, to establish, to make that, that foundation strong because other things have crept in it's kind of like you know yeah we're, we're, we're pouring the foundation but you know what we're not going to put the form up it just takes too long to build the form we're just going to slop the the mud in a in a, a dirt uh, ditch or you may have a foundation but it's not going to be very strong over a period of time right i mean a foundation should be made up of rebarb and all that kind of stuff and that requires a form And so you have to take some time to do that. As a matter of fact, sometimes when they build, I said this last week, I think when they build skyscrapers, it takes longer before the building even starts. They're digging down you know, floors and floors and floors, and they are thinking, what are they doing? Are they they digging to China? Where are they going? They're laying the foundation. So then once they start to, after the foundation is laid, what? The building goes up rather quickly because they have something firm to build on be built on and that's what our faith is about so he says he wants them to be established in their faith, he wants Timothy to help them with that to strengthen them Um, no faith can be strong without knowledge and understanding of the truth I mean you could say you have the strongest faith in the world if you don't understand the Bible, your faith is useless if you don't understand the God who saved you, your faith is useless so we need to take the time to do that Secondly, he says there that not only establish them, but exhort them. This is an interesting word, parakaleo. Some of you recognize that as the word for who? The Holy Spirit, right? One who is called alongside of us to help us in our Christian faith. That's what this, this was, Timothy was to do, Paul was saying, hey, I want you to go there. I want you to strengthen them in their faith, but I also want you to exhort them. I want you to come alongside them and encourage them by your presence there. Motivating them to live out that doctrine that they're established in. We need that in our lives, do we not? So many times we're, it's easy to come to church and learn a bunch of stuff and then just sit on it. Well, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to utilize that teaching to help us to encourage others, as here Timothy was doing to them. And his task was to make the foundation of the Thessalonians' faith solid and unwavering. Why? Because afflictions were going to come, right? Trials were going to come. And they could have confidence to apply the truth that Paul and Timothy had taught them. He was in a way conducting a follow-up visit that Paul probably would have done himself. That was part of Paul's ministry in any any churches that he was involved with. He was always strengthening and encouraging them. Um, we can see that in, in various places. Acts 14. Um, it says, after uh, this is Paul, for example, Paul and Barnabas, and they they and their, the group of people who were with them returned a lot of times to the cities where they had previously taught. They'd they'd start a church, they'd teach there for a while, and then they'd leave, and then they'd want to go back. And this explains why. It says, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Why? It tells us, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. See, it's not like you just become a Christian and then you get a free pass the rest of your life and live happy, happy, happy in Jesus. When you become a Christian, my friend, that's when the trials start. That's when you begin to feel the pain. That's when the afflictions and tribulations start. Because for the first time in your life, all of a sudden you're faced with a choice. Do I just do stuff for myself? Am I just to be concerned for myself? Or is there something greater here? Well, when you come to Christ, you realize that there is something greater. And we're called to put ourselves on the cross. We're called to die to ourselves and say, hey, you know what? I want to do this, but you know what? The Lord would rather have me do this. And it requires sacrifice. And Paul was not... um, It wasn't foreign to Paul, that word sacrifice. So Timothy was to strengthen, he was to encourage or exhort the Thessalonians... And the main focus of this strengthening and exhorting and encouraging them was not with their household incomes or teach them how to plant stuff or whatever. No, it focused purely on their faith, it says. It says to establish and exhort you in what? Your faith. This was their personal faith. This isn't the faith. Speaking of the Christian faith, it's talking about their faith. And he mentions this word five times here in our text, down through verse 10, basically, in verse 2, 5, 6, 7, and 10. And this is not, like I said, the faith, like a defender of the faith, as Jude 3 says, but but really it's the body of the gospel truths uh, that, that the Thessalonians believed, that they were willing to believe. The Thessalonian believers constituted really a model church with a lot of different virtues, But they were still young in the faith. They were only months old. And they were being tested already by affliction and by tribulation. And they needed further guidance, you could say, toward their spiritual maturity. That's why it's so important to understand when you come to Christ, you're not an island. You can't. You can't survive that way. That's why God has given you the Holy Spirit. That's why God has given you the Word of God. That's why God has given you a church to be part of so that we can grow together in our maturity in the Lord. And Paul refers here to faith. Sometimes he uses the word believe. Uh, In verse 3 of of chapter 1, he says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. You see it there. You see it in verse 8 of chapter 1. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So he's really focused on their faith. In chapter 2, verse 13, he kind of uses the same word at the end there, but it's it's the word believe in the English, but it's the same Greek word as faith. He says, which is at work in you believers. Those are people that possess faith. Or in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, he wanted to send Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Verse 5, he says, I sent to learn about your faith. Verse 6, he talks about it again. I brought good news of your faith. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. You can see Paul's kind of dialing in on something, right? Verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking, what, in your faith, he says. And it continues through the entire book and even the second book, this focus on faith. It's it's roughly the equivalent of saying somebody is a Christian, somebody believes in Christ. That's the kind of faith he's talking about. He's talking about that kind of personal faith. Especially... It's, it's focusing on trusting God in the midst of trials here in verse 2 and in verse 5. You know, yesterday I was talking to the men about Abraham, and we talked a little bit about faith. And I was saying that today in our society, when people hear the word faith, they think of some kind of a, a, a supernatural force. Um, they think of some magical power. This is how faith is portrayed in the secular world. Whether it's faith that you place in yourself or whether it's some other force that you're putting your your faith in, how many times have we have we heard people say, well, you know, you you just gotta have love in your heart, the power of love. They have faith in love, or, or somebody's promising change. The promise of change is on the horizon. They have faith in change. But the point is always the same from the secular world. You know what? Just believe what you believe hard enough and your dreams can come true. You can have your best life now. That's what they tell us. And it's not just secular sources that are telling us this by the way. This has crept into the church. And what they're basically saying is it doesn't mean what it doesn't matter what people believe. That's not important. It's irrelevant. They just got to have faith. The critical thing is simply that you believe. That's what their message is. And whatever the object of your faith, it doesn't matter. As long as it makes you happy and it furthers your lifestyle, go for it. Well, biblical faith couldn't be anything further from the truth. Biblical faith is not that. Biblical faith, if I were to define it, it's a confident trust in and full dependence on the only right object of faith, God himself. That's what biblical faith is. It's a confident trust and a full dependence on the only right object of faith, God himself. I mean, the reality is that faith is only as good as the object in which you put your faith in. It's nothing more than that. And a lot of times people today want to have faith in themselves. To me, that's very limiting, and it's very discouraging. Trust me, I don't want to have faith in myself. (laughs) Faith based on that kind of fantasy is nothing more than really fiction. But for the Christian, for those who believe in Christ, what do we do? We have faith in God. We have faith in Christ. And it's the key to us facing any circumstances in life, good, bad, trials, blessings. And God is infinitely powerful. He's infinitely wise and good and faithful and loving to us. And it teaches us to depend on him like the Apostle Paul was, was, was explaining to us in Romans how he depended on God. His faith was in God. He says in Romans 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? For I am convinced of this, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can touch us when we have faith in God, when we have faith in Christ. We read in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us by faith, speaking of those who, kind of that have walked before us, we could say. They conquered kingdoms. They performed acts of righteousness. They obtained promises. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women even received back their dead by resurrection. This is all by faith. See, when your faith is properly placed in something that deserves your faith, like God, anything is possible. It's through faith these Old Testament saints were able to accomplish all these incredible things we hear about in Sunday school. God was able to use them in an incredible way because they what? They believed in him. They had faith in him. It's important to point out sometimes we put these guys on a pyramid, right? We put them up on a big pedestal and we think, oh, boy, these heroes of the faith. I I guarantee you that any of those men of the Old Testament and women who were considered heroes of the faith would not receive such accolades. They would say, it's not us, it's who? It's the God we believe in. We believe in God, He's the one who deserves the credit. Because their faith was unseen, but it was not blind. God was the source of their power. He was the source of their strength, as he should be ours. He was the focus. He was the object of their faith. And their their confidence was a trust and full dependence that was placed solely in him. That's why we say we, we have faith, we have trust in Christ. And what? Christ alone. Period. Don't add anything to it. Void of the right object, faith is nothing more than wishful thinking. You could have all the faith you could want in something. But unless it's God, it's not going to help you. It's pitiful. It's powerless. But when it's placed in God, faith is the essence for our salvation and the heart of the Christian life. And faith is never something that's um, underdefined in the word of God. It's rather just trusting in the truth of God about Jesus Christ as revealed in his word. Romans 10, 17, Paul says that faith comes from what? From hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. He adds in Romans 14, 23, whatever is not from faith as a believer is what? Is sin. Is sin. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So ongoing faith in God and the promises of his word, especially centered on the work and person of Jesus Christ, is essential for us. Don't believe the world that says, oh, you can believe whatever you want. No, you can't. Well, you can, but you're going you're to reap the consequences. So others strengthened and encouraged in their faith is often costly. The main area in which we need strength and encouragement is our faith. But then thirdly here, we see in verses 3 to 5, there's a hindrance. (laughs) It's not so easy just to be strengthened and encouraged in our faith, is it? If it was easy, we'd always be doing it, and we'd always be encouraged, and we'd always be strong, but that's not the case. We live in a fallen world that's tainted by sin, And Paul says, you know what, the main hindrance to being strengthened and encouraged to our faith are trials, trials, tribulations. And look at what he says in verse 3. He says that no one, we want you to be strong, we want you to be, be encouraged in your faith, so that no one be moved by these afflictions. So he's guaranteeing them that they will have issues. I mean, tell that to the Word of Faith evangelist on television that says, oh, no, I, I don't have any problems because I'm, I'm a Christian, and I, I don't have any tribulation. I don't have any financial problems. I don't have any nothing. That's a lie. It's funny, all these faith healers, the older they get, the thicker their glasses get. You ever wonder? I, yeah, I just want to say, why don't you just heal yourself? You're healing everybody else. Just heal your eyes. I mean, Jesus did that. He healed people. But Paul sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. And he says that no one would be moved by these afflictions. He says, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. That we are destined for this. When he says they are moved, say no in the original language there, it means to be shaken or unsettled. Um, agitated is a good word, or disturbed. He doesn't want them to be disturbed in their faith. He wants them to be strengthened and encouraged. But you know what? Afflictions sometimes agitate us. At least they do me. I don't enjoy trials. I don't enjoy going through hard times in life. We've all had hard times. I don't enjoy that. I don't sit there and clap and go, oh, great, this is a wonder opportunity for God to make himself known again. Bring it on. No, I'm like, God, get me out of this. This is not uncomfortable. I don't like this trial. I don't want to go through this. All the well knowing that he's allowing it to happen for our betterment and for our sanctification and all that. But I mean, there would be something wrong with you upstairs if you, if you prayed, they, God, please send more issues into my life. Give me more afflictions. Even though we know that that's God's means, we don't go there. There'd be something wrong with you if you if you prayed that way. It's like somebody's. I you know, always say, you know, Lord, I just pray that you'll make me more patient. Be careful. Be careful what you're asking. That's a prayer that He'll probably answer, and you will not like the answer, because all, immediately you will see things up, pop up in your life that are going to cause you to grow very, very impatient. And that word disturbed there, the word moved, originally it was designated for the wagging of a dog's tail. Kind of interesting. And through many years it it, it kind of has come to mean to fascinate or to flatter or to beguile or to allure. And if you think about it, when you have a dog and it starts wagging its tail, what does that mean? It means, hey, look at me. Pet me. Love me. I'm your dog. And they wag their tail. right? They want attention and they want it now. And that's really what the idea here is. It refers to a person who tries to flatter or to beguile other people. And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to be lured away from the truth by someone with such a nature. They didn't want someone to come and kind of, what are you doing all this? Paul's gone now. You can do whatever you want. He's not here. Let's, let's get, bring in some of the idols and we'll do this, we'll do that. It'll be fine. It doesn't matter really what you believe as long as you're happy. And Paul was worried about that. He didn't want anybody to be, lure them away from the truth because they had been made vulnerable by persecution and by suffering. That's what Paul was aware of. He, he, he felt the affliction, he felt the trials while he was there in Thessalonica with them and now he's gone but he's saying, you know what, the trials are continuing and these poor young Christians are having to deal with them. I wonder how they're doing. I can't stand it anymore. i got to send someone. I'm going to send Timothy to go find out. That word afflictions there has to deal with tests of faith and suffering. Tests of faith and suffering. Pressure exuded upon us help us to grow more like Christ. And he tells them there, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. It's interesting he includes himself there, for you yourselves know that we are destined. He's not pointing the finger at the Thessalonians saying, what are you doing wrong? Why are all these trials in your life? Isn't that funny how the church does that? Somebody go through a difficult time. Well, What sin do you have? You must, you must be sinning in some way. God's God's judging you for something. No. Look at Job, right? He was a righteous man. Look what happened to him. I mean, we'd lose our mind if that happened to us. We'd be shaking our fist at God so fast, probably, outside of his intervention and his grace in our life. We'd be thinking, God, wait a minute. I'm serving you, and you killed everybody that I know, and you left my wife, and she basically says, curse God, die? Come on. So he concludes himself in this. He refers to both the Thessalonians and Paul. Later on in Second Timothy chapter three, verse twelve, Paul exhorted Timothy, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen, will be persecuted. Not may, not might. <laughs> he says they will be persecuted, Timothy. If you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted for your faith. The problem is, we have a lot of believers today that are not willing to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. They have a problem there. They have an issue there. And so, I've talked to a lot of Christians. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I I never get persecuted for my faith. Well, I'd say, check how you're living If you're just going with the flow of the world, yeah, yeah, they're not going to see anything different in you. They're not going to notice anything different about you. But when you begin to stand up against the flow, and you begin to stand up for godly principles and what God says is true and not the world, there's going to be some ripples in the water. There's going to be some rapids. Uh, There's going to be some torment coming your way. And he reminds them that all believers should expect tribulations, that should... All believers should expect persecution because he says we're destined for this. We're destined to have these issues cropped up in our lives. And to make sure that the Thessalonians got this point, Paul reminds them that indeed when he was with them, he goes on there and he says, beforehand, I told you that you were going to suffer afflictions. It's like when someone comes to Christ and they're so so excited about having their sins forgiven and they're just so on fire for the Lord and you know they haven't felt the iron brand of affliction or, or tribulation in their life yet and they're, they're going to save the world. And they go out there and they start trying to preach the gospel to their family and all of a sudden their family says, you know what, you're not welcome here anymore. We don't like you anymore. They have to make a decision. Well, do I... Do I change my message so it doesn't offend my family? So I can continue to be with my family? Or do I continue to share the message unadulterated and uncompromised and let the chips fall where they may? I'll never forget when I first became a believer um, for my Roman Catholic Church. My oldest brother pretty much was my guardian, he was the one that raised me. I was home for a weekend, and I had planned to get baptized in the local Baptist church there. We got baptized in a creek, actually. It was in April, end of April. It was freezing. There was still, like, snow on the ground. I don't know why. (laughs) But uh, anyway, we got baptized. And when we were at the church service that morning, my one nephew asked if he could get baptized, too. He said he believed in Christ. And, you know, I was a brand-new believer. Sure, why not? You know, let's ask the pastor. Oh, Sure. Never thought anything about it. And we came home from church that day. And uh, my brother wasn't going to church at all, really. But, um, you know, kind of told him, well, what what, what did you guys do today? Oh, well, well, we got baptized. We were all excited. He goes, you what? He goes, we got baptized. He said, you're Catholic. What are you doing? And, And then he found out that I let his son get baptized, my nephew. And basically, he... You know, kind of lost his mind and kicked me out of the house. And I'll never forget. I mean, it was, I was just blown away. I'm like, what? What what are you talking about? This is a good thing. He couldn't conceive it, (laughs) you know. And I remember him telling me many times, you know, when your mom was dying on her deathbed, my mom was a very diehard Roman Catholic woman. And when she was dying of cancer, I promised to raise all of you in the Catholic faith. And you're messing this up. I mean, that was his whole focus. It wasn't whether it was true or not. It was like, I made you this promise to your mom, and it was, it was kind of crazy. But you know what? He turned, and it was, well, we had a struggle in our relationship for a couple weeks until we got it all sorted out. But see, he says, when, when I was there with you, I told you, I kept telling you, this is going to happen. You know, and this is is wise that we understand this because when we're sharing the gospel with somebody, please don't tell them. Just come to Jesus and everything will be fine. That's the last thing they need to hear because it's not true. When Jesus himself said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of what? Me, me. Christ says, it's going to have to do with me. I mean, if you don't believe me, you start talking about Jesus. You start talking about, start talking about Christ to your family and your workers, co-workers, and you see how far that you go. <laughs> he says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who went before you. That's out of Matthew 5. And Paul says, basically, you know what? If you're going to believe in Christ you're going to have trials, you're going to have tribulations. If you don't have them in your life, there's something wrong. You're compromising somewhere. Now, I'm not saying you should go to work and be an idiot and get fired, you know, stand at the water cooler with your King James Bible on a platform and preach to everybody. I mean, you have to be what? Wise, right? Harmless as dove, wise is serpent. I mean, that's the whole idea. We have to be careful. But at the same time, we shouldn't compromise the message, Simply because people don't like the message. William Hendrickson said this afflictions that have been predicted and that take place in accordance with this prediction serve to strengthen our faith. In other words, when someone comes to Christ and you begin to be honest with them and say, you know what, this isn't going to be easy for you. You're going to have some trials, you're going to have some tribulations in your faith, but God is going to be there with you. He'll get you, he'll walk with you through the trials and through the the fire and through the tribulation and the flood and everything else that comes your way, then when it actually happens, what what happens? Well, that's what they said would happen. And it's true. And it begins to strengthen your faith. And God does hold you in the palm of his hand, and he does take care of you. And so he reminds them here of two important theological truths, and we'll close with this, that put their, their suffering in perspective, you might say. First of all, in verse 3, he says that that believers have been destined for affliction. This is something that will happen to every believer at some point in time. Now, there are times of blessing as well. But Paul says, you know what? Get ready. Make sure you're strong, that you're you're encouraged in your faith because the trials are coming. And then secondly, in verse 4, he warns them that affliction would definitely come. He says, I've warned you about this and I told you this. Paul didn't get these new believers, uh, you know, some miraculous healing and financial success and and say, wow, now you're a king's kid, you know, nothing's going to touch you. No, no, he didn't teach them that. He, He taught them rather that they were destined, they were appointed for trials. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In John chapter 16, verse 33. It says, these things, Jesus said, I've spoken to you so that in me, those who are in Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have what? Tribulation. But take courage. And this is the encouragement, right? I have overcome the world. You know, we, we serve a victorious Savior. And our foe has been defeated. And that's why God wants us to be encouraged. That's why God wants us to be strengthened. And then the the last verse here in verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, he restates what he said earlier. This is how much frustration was in his heart. He says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He wanted to make sure that they knew that there were temptations out there. And basically, the tempter, Satan himself, the devil, uses three basic approaches. His first approach, his first assault, is to prevent people from believing in Christ. He'll do anything he can to prevent you from believing solely in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says this, in their case, the God of this world has what? Has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so in some cases, people have been blinded by the enemy from seeing the truth. And that's why when we're out there evangelizing and we're sharing the 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 gospel with people, we don't need to take this personally. Sometimes there are people who will not believe in Christ. Well, their eyes have been blinded by the enemy. We need to pray that God would remove the scales from their eyes, that they could see the truth. So he prevents them from believing. Secondly, if he can't do that, he wants to destroy someone's initial interest in the gospel. He wants to kind of lead them down a side path once they hear the gospel. It says in Matthew chapter 13, he uses this, as an illustration in verse 20, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has no root in himself. That goes back to the foundation that I was talking about. But endures for a while, and when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, it says, he what falls away. He falls away. So, kind of like a fair weather believer, when everything's going great, hey, Jesus is my king. But then, when the wheels fall off the cart, oh wait a minute, <laughs> I, I better find another god. Something, this something is wrong with this faith. And if he can't stop them from embracing the gospel, Satan strives, is thirdly, to weaken the faith of those who do believe. Second Corinthians eleven three. Paul writes, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As believers, that's our danger. That somehow we could be led down a path. We could be led away from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ through God's word. Don't make it more than what it is. Coming to Christ, believing in Christ, is not rocket science. It's very simple. It it has an understanding that I am a sinner. I have no hope in myself to save myself. I'm not going to put my hope in a church to save me because all the churches are messed up. I'm not going to put my hope in a pope or a pastor to save me because they can't. There's only one individual who has paid the price for your salvation, incomplete, has satisfied God, and God has shown us as much by raising him on the third day, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, if you want to be saved, it's not difficult. You just need to give it up to Christ. You need to come to Christ. Drop the pride and all that and say, yeah, you know what? I am a sinner. I do have issues in my life, and I'm tired of carrying them around. And I want to come to Christ and, 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 and just unload them on him. And Jesus says, bring them on. That's why I'm here. Don't be led astray from the purity of devotion to Christ. And once you come to Christ... He forgives you of your sin. You understand that you're a new creation in Christ. And and now you begin your your walk of faith. And then when the trials come, you can say, hey, you know what? I know this is going to happen, and I don't like it. It doesn't feel good, but God, you're faithful to see me through this. And when he does, you praise him. And so here we see this, this pastor's heart of Paul. He was willing to give up everything personally Just to find out how they were doing. I mean, how many times, if we see a brother or sister going through trials, how many times do we even care enough to come alongside of them, to strengthen them, to encourage them in their faith? Or do we just say, ah, it's not my problem, I don't want to get involved in that? We have to be careful. As Christians, we're encouraged in 1 Peter 5-7 to cast all of our anxiety, all of our cares on Him, on Christ. Why? Because He cares for you. He cares for you. The Lord has put us into His family where we should care for one another. And if we truly care for one another, we will want to be together. We will want to strengthen one another. We will want to encourage one another spiritually. Father, we thank You for Your Word This morning, we pray that the lesson from the Apostle Paul would work its way deep into our hearts and our minds. We wouldn't walk out of this building unchanged. Lord, there's all of us need some element of change here today because none of us do this perfectly. Some of you who gathered here today may not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you may never have trusted Him, you may never have heard the concept of being a sinner and that simply means you're not, you're not living up to God's expectation you're not doing what pleases God and someone has to pay for that sin And the good news is that Christ already paid your debt he already paid for your sin you simply need to cry out to him and ask him to save you Lord be merciful to me a sinner you acknowledge your sin before a holy God and you turn to the Savior that's what salvation is That's what he desires you to do. So if you haven't trusted Christ, I encourage you, talk to someone or talk to God more importantly and say, Lord, save me. Explain this to the Lord. He'll hear you. He'll hear hear that prayer of faith. And for us believers, I pray that we wouldn't grow weary in in well-doing, but we would take the encouragement and the strength that the scriptures offer us and pass that on to others who maybe are a little downtrodden on their walk of faith, and we can come alongside of them and encourage them and build them up. Help us not to give up on the institution of the church. This is what you've given us to support us in our Christian growth and our Christian walk, along with the Holy Spirit and his word. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would just bless this word to our hearts, I pray for our fellowship time across the way. You would bless the food to our bodies and allow our conversations to be honored to you and sweet. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's